All right, so this is, I guess, our first podcast for What's the Decision State Edition. We'll add the federal people at some point. Um, they write such long opinions. I don't know. We'll 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 fi- we'll figure out a way to add to add the federal crowd. We'll just start off with the state cases now. So I'm Scott Key. And I'm Kendall Browning. And so we're we'll just go right into it. Uh, these are. It wasn't like a really busy September for either the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court, although there were a couple of pretty important opinions that came out um, over the last month. I'll start with Court of Appeals. What What's going on in the Court of Appeals? Well, there wasn't a whole lot of material in the Court of Appeals this month. There were a lot of cases that got sent back for resentencing with a lot of old merger issues that trial courts aren't really catching. Um, my favorite was the State v. Baker, which was decided on September 5th, and it was where the court found error in dismissing a juror without questioning her first. Okay, so this is kind of a cursory thing. I don't know. It's almost like judges have their list of questions they have to rehabilitate jurors, and it seems like just about everything flies whenever judges do that. But what, what was different about this case? Well, in this case, they had selected their jury, they had tried the case, and the jury was deliberating. Um, At that point, they had reached a deadlock. The foreperson came out and told the judge, point blank, we don't want this person on the jury, you need to excuse her. And so the judge didn't bring her out, didn't question her, didn't ask her if she was having problems with deliberating or anything, and then excused the juror and then replaced her with an alternate. So the funnest part about this case was the person on trial was African-American, and this woman was the only African-American person on the panel. Um, I thought that was interesting. So they excused her, and then they raised it at a motion for new trial, and the judge actually granted him a motion for new trial, finding that he erred in not questioning the juror first. And you see this kind of thing a lot when you have a holdout juror. And as long as a juror is deliberating... Um, it doesn't. Like you can you can hold firm in your opinion, but I've seen this so many times where people try to oust the holdout juror. What are some practice tips? Like, what are some things people can do to sort of maybe have the jury prepared to deal with or jurors prepared to deal with this kind of questioning at the end? I don't know if there's a way you can really prepare jurors to deal with this. I mean, in this case, I'm not sure who the attorney was, but they did everything they were supposed to do. Um, from a practice point, you know, the, they said, judge, can we bring her out? Can we question her? Can we talk to her? Can we ask her about this? And the judge was just not having it. So in this case, they did everything that I would do in raising the objection, preserving it for appeal, and making sure it's clear that you want to ask her, you know, why she's not delivering, what the problem is, and not just talk to the poor person. Yeah, so that's an important case. So I, one more, and this is getting into your territory because you're the you're the appellate court of appeals editor. Yes. Um, I didn't catch this case uh, myself, but it came out in late August, August 26, 2019. It's Gray versus State. And let me tell you a little bit about Gray. I, I had a lawyer out in uh, Augusta tell me about his experience with Gray, and then I, I do a lot of motions to modify sentence, and so... This is this came up for me for the first time today. Gray is an unusual case. It comes out of um, I think DeKalb, and basically, uh, my understanding of how it all works is you can file a motion to modify sentence under OCGA 17-10-1 subsection F, and as long as it's within 120 days following the remitter of a case from the the appellate court, or within one year of sentencing if there was no appeal then 
as long as you file it timely, you're fine. Uh, it doesn't matter when it's heard, which is the case for just about anything that you file where there's a deadline. Um, this is an unusual set of facts because you have Judge A that sentences Gray. You have a motion to modify sentence that's filed. Eleven months later, the case comes before um, the a Judge B who is presiding that day who hears the modification, modifies the sentence. Judge A then finds out that his sentence has been modified. Judge A then sua sponte files an order vacating the sentence. Uh, Mr. Gray appeals saying that the judge was without power to vacate the sentence. And the Court of Appeals actually reverses holding that in spite of the fact that the motion was timely filed, the court lost jurisdiction to hear the case um, because a year passed before the hearing was set. Um, this is a potentially huge change in the law. Um, it was used against me this morning in a hearing. It's been used against uh, another person out in Richmond County. So I know that the DAs are hearing about it. They're talking to each other about it. And it's something that, now I will say that, that Gray, Gray's attorneys have applied for cert. So that there is a cert petition pending on it. The unusual thing about this case is there's a whole line of cases and there's a string side at the end of the opinion that's about 10 cases long. Um, and the court says, we admit that the party's interpretation of the statutory rule may have been reasonable given that one could read prior cases from this court as suggesting, and they don't suggest, they hold, uh, that the only factor relevant to the time limitation set forth in OCGA 17101F is whether the defendant filed a timely motion. They don't explicitly reverse or overturn these cases. They say these cases are distinguishable, however, um, because none addresses the specific issue resolved in this opinion. Uh, this was written by Judge Rickman. The panel was joined by Miller and Reese. Um, the best I could do was to say in our court that we had the same judge that was hearing the modification as heard the sentence. And so it's distinguishable because we didn't, we're not trying to vacate any kind of order. You know, the judge ultimately was skeptical about Gray, but found that I didn't just didn't, he just denied it on the merits, uh, but found that um, he had the jurisdiction to hear it. But this is going to be a problem going forward. Yeah. And it's not something that we've run into. And I think I missed it because it was actually affirmed. They affirmed Judge A's. Oh, it's an affirmance. That's right. Yeah. So it's, that's. It how, probably didn't hit our radar screen because right. it was an affirmance. Because it was, it was affirmed. Um, but it's not something that we've dealt with yet. But I hope the Supreme Court takes a cert because that's going to be a problem long well, term. It creates all kinds of problems because, it, you know, the, the judge could just run the time out, could just run the clock out. Yeah. And, and just refuse to schedule it. Or, oh, sorry, we didn't get them produced. Yeah. Um, and also, I think for you to get heard, you have to file your, you'd have to file your motion to modify so fast that the DA's argument's going to be, you're not really taking responsibility. We, you don't have anything new to show here because just, you, you just turned around and filed this a week later. Um, it puts you in a, you know, typically I've, I've always advised clients, let's wait till we're closing in on the one year mark because you'll have a, you'll have a good disciplinary history in prison or you will have done some programs or, you know, you may have done some counseling or you may have gotten into church ministry or something like that. Um, you might have paid your restitution off. Um, really, it, this sort of takes the wind out of the sails of that entire statute. Well, and I think one way that we can work towards 
dealing with this right now is to find a way to convince the court that they do retain jurisdiction. I know there are certain circumstances where where they can retain jurisdiction for long periods of time, so trying to find a way to convince the court that they still have jurisdiction despite this opinion. Mm -hmm. Yep, so just make sure if you're gonna do a modification that you're aware of the Gray case. What else happened September? What else happened in September? What happened in the Supreme Court in September, Scott? Okay, um, not a not a huge in terms of not a huge month in terms of new uh, case law. Uh, there was this was a pretty active month in terms of the trial court sitting as the thirteenth juror. Uh, there were two cases that came out. There was State v. Hamilton that came out on September the third, two thousand nineteen, and there was State v. Holmes that also came out on September the third. Uh, the Hamilton case is interesting. Um, in that it's a fairly colorful set of facts. I actually ran into one of the lawyers that kind of knew some of the backstory of this. Um, Bobby Lee Cook used to always refer to an unofficial defense to murder, but, but, an, but a legitimate defense to murder is the needed killing defense. And it looks like um, the judge just didn't think much of the victim in that case. And my understanding is this judge was on his way out. He was like, his retirement was imminent. And so he just, as the, sitting as the 13th juror, uh, found that he just didn't think that there was sufficient evidence. Uh, always an important thing to keep in your toolbox. Um, there's the Jackson v. Virginia standard, which we all know is pretty, pretty hard to overcome if there's any evidence. But in Georgia, there's this unique wrinkle under OCGA 5-5-21 that if the judge just doesn't think the guy's guilty, the judge can set it aside. Now they ha there's the option to retry, but um, and you can see that fairly the the court defers to trial judges um, who enter a proper order, let it laying out some facts, um, basically justifying their decision as the thirteenth juror. So uh, two thirteenth juror cases, and then. There's this interesting case, um, which is not a reported opinion, but it's very interesting for the concurring opinion, I guess it is. It's mm -hmm. Sprayberry versus Inman, which was a September 19th opinion. Uh, Justice Nami, now, the, basically nothing really helpful happened for, for, Spray, for Inman, who was the habeas petitioner. But uh, this troubled, there's something about this case that troubled Justice Namias, and he writes, of the multitude of cases in which a new trial has been denied, Inman's case is the one that causes me the most concern that an innocent person remains convicted and sentenced to serve the rest of his life in prison. Uh, he implores the Attorney General, the Attorney General should decide whether it is really in the interest of justice for the state of Georgia to continue fighting to, to block discovery regarding Inman's claims and asserting procedural defenses to present a hearing on the merits of those claims and indeed whether the state should continue resisting Emmons' efforts to obtain a new trial. And he concludes, uh, quoting the language that's over the bench at the Supreme Court, let justice be done. Um, justice Melton wrote a concurrence. And, you know, Justice Namias is the former, uh, is the former um, U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia. Um, something about this troubles him, and this is an un this is unusual concurring language um, particularly from a judge I wouldn't expect this from. Uh, so I don't know what will happen, but uh, it's interesting that you have a judge basically asking the DA's office, whose hands essentially are tied, 
asking the, the prosecutor, the AG is not really a prosecutor, but asking the attorney general to do the right thing. Yeah, I thought the inter the language was really interesting. I mean, obviously he feels very strongly about it, and it's not something you read every day. And I hope it's something that they, they take note of because it sounds like this guy has some pretty good claims, but he had ran out all of his appeals before he figured out you know, what those were. And from a practice perspective, I think it's important. Um, I think Tina Hunt in the middle, the, 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 um, the uh, federal defender for the middle district, uh, I think I heard her at a CLE one time say that your job at sentencing is to torture judges and not, not literally torture judges, but you know, uh, these are humans. They are, things trouble them. And I think this kind of shows that you can get the attention of the judge, get the attention of the court and even if the black letter law is against you, um, imploring people to do the right thing can sometimes be a powerful advocacy strategy. We'll have to keep an eye on Mr. Inman and what happens right, next. Right, right. Anything else on the Court of Appeals? Uh, there were just a couple of other, like I said, there wasn't a lot going on in the Court of Appeals. I think there's going to be a lot more in October. Um, I pulled a case, Tanksley v. State. It was decided on September 19th, and it discusses the requirements for a juvenile Miranda waiver. And it's not any new case law, but if it's an issue that you're dealing with, it's got a lot of really good language in there. Because I think under the old Riley case, there are factors that for the juvenile court to, well, even in the Superior Court, if you have a juvenile uh, witness or a juvenile defendant, there's a set of factors beyond just the Miranda factors right. that are at play. And I think it's what, like ed educational level, access to parents. Right, and whether or not they were informed of what they were questioned about, um, whether or not they were alone when they were interrogated, and whether or not they had actually signed a waiver. So in this case, she had signed a waiver, but it was an adult Miranda waiver. Just a standard waiver. Just standard. It wasn't geared towards juveniles, even though they had a juvenile waiver available. Um, she was 15, she was alone, and when they brought her in, she thought that she was there to talk about her cousin's murder, like she wasn't a sus suspect, but they were actually talking to her about an armed robbery, so she was confused from the get-go. It addresses those factors really well, and it's got some really good language that I think is important if that's something that you're dealing with. Um, and then I also pulled the a homicide by vehicle case, O'Shields v. State. It was September 11th of 2019, and it talks about um, having the lesser included of homicide by vehicle in the second degree. This is a case where I think it was pretty clear to everybody involved that O'Shields was under the influence. He ran into a fire truck that was there for another accident, um, but he was also speeding and following too closely and his argument at trial was that the speeding or the following too closely could have been what caused the accident and not the DUI and the trial court refused to give him the lesser included so again that's very case specific I have a homicide by vehicle case that I'm working on right now and that's kind of why it piqued my interest and the court of appeals said regardless of how far-fetched it might I mean they didn't, yes. the reason is no matter how far-fetched your theory might be if there's some evidence to support a lesser included you get the lesser included yes and in this case the jury actually came back with a split verdict they found him not guilty on several counts and that was something that the court of appeals looked at too they looked at they were like well I mean they could have found him on the lesser included if the charge was given considering the fact that they had a split verdict. They were mitigating it at some level it, it appears if you just read behind the read between the lines of what did happen. Right so and that was that was the only other case that I got from the Court of Appeals. 
Like I said, it wasn't a very interesting September. No, I mean, nor for the Supreme Court, although October looks a little busier. Well, look for these cases and what's the decision. We hope to be back with you to give some commentary in future months. This is kind of our experimental slash premiere episode. Um, I drove down to the Houston County Courthouse to uh, see the palatial office of Kendall Browning, and I'm very impressed. And so uh, she may be headed up to the palatial office of Miller and Key uh, in October. I'm sorry, well, in November to talk about our October cases. And that's the plan, so we'll keep doing it as long as you guys keep listening. All right, well, thanks so much.